Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, a young church that Paul had planted. He is writing to encourage them in their daily life, and he has filled it full of wonderful uh, truth about who they are because of what God has done. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Ephesians. Chapter 2 is where we are today. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this letter to that church, because these are good words to this church as well. Thank You for the amazing truth that we see in these words. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts that we might hear them today. We pray that your spirit would be at work. We come with a lot of things on our minds. We come with a lot of things that cloud our vision, that plug up our ears. But Lord, will you just unstop our ears and uncloud our eyes, clear our hearts that we might see who you are more clearly today, that we might hear the wonderful truth of what you've done for us. You speak to me and through me and to all of us through your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, um, a, a pastor and an author who's, who's since passed away named Jack Miller. And he would oftentimes say, cheer up, it's a lot worse than you think. You know, when you hear news, people will tell you, you know, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? And almost always you want the bad news first, right? Because you want to land, you want to end on the good news. Well, cheer up, it's a lot worse than you think, is really also the description of what Christians call the gospel. The good news. Because the good news that we proclaim has a lot of really bad news in it too. In fact, if you'll see the title of my sermon, it's the best bad news you've ever heard. I don't know if you've ever read the book or seen the movie called Touching the Void. It's a story, a true story of two climbers who set out to summit this peak that had never been reached before. And they reached it, and on their way down, actually one of them fell and broke his leg. And around that time, also, snowstorm came up on the mountain, made visibility really, really low. 
So they devised this plan that the strong, you know, the, the healthy climber would lower his, his, his buddy, who was also his, his, one of his best friends, down in this, on this rope, like 300 meters down. He would gently kind of climb down on his one good leg, and the other guy would hold him on this rope. Well, because it's such bad conditions, he can't see him when he's three, 300 meters down, and ends up that this man falls, and he falls off a cliff and into this crevasse in the side of the mountain. Well, the one on top who's got the rope attached has no idea what's going on, and he waits hours for this man to do something, but he doesn't know what to do, and finally he gives up thinking that he's dead, and he cuts the rope. And his friend, the climber with the broken leg, falls down into this deep crevasse, this deep canyon. And he survives, but he realizes that he can't climb back out, and the only thing that he can do is go deeper and deeper into the darkness to see if he can get out. So he climbs deeper into that crevasse, deeper into that canyon, further and further into this utter darkness, looking for some sort of light. That's kind of the way that Paul has laid out this passage. He gives us a lot of darkness at the first. And he he, he begins to climb deeper and deeper into that, hoping that there might be light down at the bottom. That's the journey we're going to take today. We're going to climb deeper and deeper into that darkness so that we might come to see more fully the beautiful light of the gospel shine. Here's the first step into the darkness that Paul tells us. Is that there has been a death in the family and that death is yours. He says that those of all of us, before we knew Jesus, before Jesus worked in us, we are dead dead spiritually. Look at verse 1. This is how he starts the whole sentence. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once worked, or once you once walked. Notice he doesn't say that you were wounded just a little bit and you were limping along. He doesn't say that you were kind of, you know, you just needed a little push and a little help and you needed somebody to come alongside you and put your arm, put their arm around you and encourage you just to give you the little oomph that you need to keep going. He doesn't say that at all. He says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You've heard somebody say, you know, that person is dead to me. What do they mean when they say that? They mean that relationally speaking, there is no relationship. They are relationally removed. Paul says that that is the same thing of our spiritual state before Jesus works in us. We are those who are dead, who are spiritually dead. Our relationship with God is no relationship at all. Or the only relationship that is there is one of enmity and wrath. Now, you heard us read the passage earlier um, from one of the Gospels, from John, where Jesus comes to see his friend Lazarus. Let me just recap that a little bit. Jesus comes, uh, he hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. He gets word of it. But remember, there's no telephones or texting in that time, so it takes a little while to get a message and then to come and find the person who sent the message. And on the way for Jesus to come and reach his friend who's sick, Lazarus dies. And so when Jesus gets to Lazarus' house, he gets there actually just in time for a funeral. But instead of gathering everybody around and saying a few words, Jesus does something miraculous and he calls him out. And Lazarus Lazarus gets up out of the tomb, the one who was completely dead, he gets up and he comes out. My uh, preaching professor in seminary, Brian Chapel, would tell it this way. He'd say, just imagine you're standing there and one of Jesus' disciples 
when everybody's kind of huddled around and Jesus walks up, imagine if one of his disciples came up and said, Lazarus, Jesus is here. Come on. If you take the first step, he can heal you. He's right here. Everybody knows that he helps those who help themselves. So come on. Make that first step toward Jesus and let him heal you. Come on, Lazarus. You can do it. We all believe in you. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? What Paul says is that our spiritual state is the same as Lazarus' physical state. Dead. Unable to move. Unable to respond unless Jesus actually does something miraculous in us. That's the first piece of bad news that we get. Cheer up, though, because it gets worse. Here's the second piece of bad news. Okay, Not only does Paul say that we are spiritually dead, but he's talking about everyone, not just the bad people. What Paul says is this spiritual deadness applies to you, me, all of us, and everybody else in the world. Look at, look at verse 3, what he says. He says, uh, we're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is a powerful few words put together. That we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul says is that not simply by our actions, but by our nature, what we were born into is being a child not of God and His love, but actually being born under His wrath. And that is true for you and I and all of mankind. All of that's going on in those few words. Now pause for just a second to remember who's writing this. This is the Apostle Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul, the great Christian. But before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul who was the persecutor of Christians. And he was raised actually as one who knew the Old Testament backward and forward. He was born as a Jew. He was born into God's people. He was trained well, he was taught the Bible, he went to school for it, he was really, really, really good at knowing the Bible. He knew it backwards and forwards. And if you were a Jew at the time, what you would have thought was, by nature, I am born into relationship with God. But Paul totally flips it on his head. He says that by nature, we are actually born children of wrath. Not children of Abraham. Why does he say this? Why would he say this about himself and about others? It's because he knows that we need Jesus to work in our hearts. Not just in the circumstances of our lives. It is possible to have a great heritage and a great lineage. It is possible to be raised in the church. It is possible to know all of the right things to say and all of the answers and still not to really know who Jesus is. Paul knew the Old Testament backward and forward. He knew it probably much of it by heart and he did not know the central figure that it was pointing toward, Jesus. Until Jesus came and found him and he met him on the road to Damascus and he changed his life. The truth is, it's not just those of us who are, those who seem like they're outside. Those who seem like they're the bad people that need the quickening work of the Lord in our hearts. It's all of us. 
uh, a woman named Kay Warren, who's the wife of Rick Warren, who's a pastor in California of a big church there. She talks about visiting Rwanda for the first time. And this was just a few years ago. But she goes to Rwanda to visit and she remembers, you know, the 1994 genocide. And knowing that so many of those people who were the perpetrators of that genocide were still around. They were just a lot of the people who were around. And she thought, you know, I'm preparing to go and to find a lot of monsters. I'm preparing to be able to go and to look into people's eyes and know if they were involved. There were a million people who were killed, murdered, tortured. And she thought, you know, I'll be able to look into these people's eyes and see which one of them is a monster and which one of them is not. But she said what she found was really surprising to her. Because all of the people there were just like her. They got up in the morning and they went to work. They cooked dinner for their families. They sang songs and they prayed and they worshipped together. And she says this in a really powerful statement. She said, where were the monsters? Where were the evildoers capable of such heinous acts? Slowly, with a deepening sense of dread, I understood the truth. There were no monsters in Rwanda. There were just people like you and me. That's the second piece of bad news. is It applies not just to the monsters, but to people like you and me. Cheer up though. It's getting worse. Third piece of bad news we get that is not just our natures, not just that we are born by nature against God, but actually our actions follow our nature. See, there's no loophole here where you can say, I'll just blame it kind of on my birth because I haven't done anything wrong. The truth is, what Paul says here is that not only is there something broken about us inside, but it works itself out in the outside too. Look here at verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, trespasses and sins, it sounds to us like, you know, those are just kind of Christian words and and they both mean the same thing, so he's just repeating it uh, in order for some emphasis. And they are synonyms in some way, but they have a slightly different meaning. Trespasses is the word that would have been used for breaking the law. Breaking God's revealed law. So a trespasser was one who was actually against God's law, a lawbreaker. Sins was a little more personal. It was the one who had offended God himself. So what Paul says is that we are not only those who have broken God's revealed law, but in doing so, we also have offended the writer of that law. And that we aren't doing this just kind of occasionally, like, oops, I slipped and messed up, and there's an error here or there. He says, these are the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. That is, that is a word that talks about lifestyle. That is a word that talks about regularity. That is a word that talks about what it means to live in this kind of world. And that's what Paul says in describing us. And keep going. If you read in verse 2, he says that we are following the wrong leader too. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's his way of describing Satan. And what he says is that our lives without Jesus are those who are full force in the wrong direction. Following the wrong person, walking in enmity with God. That's the description he gives. You ready to keep going down even further? Because we're not even at the bottom of this canyon yet. Because here's bad news number four. The bad news number four is that we're oftentimes not even aware of any of this. We oftentimes don't even know that it's happening. This is what he says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked... 
following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Let's take those three things. You were dead in the sins in which you once in the sins in which you once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Okay, so we have a phrase now that says you were dead and walking and doing all the stuff you wanted to do. Do you see the irony in that? Do you see the irony in the fact that you can be dead and walking kind of in that death and thinking that you're doing everything that you want to do? That is actually a picture of deception. It's a picture of deception of dead people who are thinking they're alive. If you're thinking of the walking dead right now, that's a good picture, right? Because this is a zombie-like kind of existence that Paul is talking about. Spiritually dead, but thinking that you are alive and thinking that you are doing anything that you want. It is uh, active living in spiritual death. You hear that irony? That is the way that we actually act before Jesus comes and pulls us out of that death. Is that we are those who are the walking dead. We think that everything's fine. We think that there is life to be found in all the places that we're looking for it. And what Paul says is that we're actually pursuing death. We are living a life of spiritual death. We're at the bottom now. Here's where we are. In this dark cave. Where this is what we've learned. Is that we are spiritually dead. That that spiritual death uh, affects everyone. Not just bad people. That our actions more often than not. Actually follow that spiritual death as well. And play itself out in our lives. And that we are also oftentimes deceiving ourselves. Thinking that what we're doing is giving us life. When it's actually bringing us more death. That's the picture that Paul draws for us of humankind, of human nature in need of salvation. And that is the place where we've got to be if we were going to see the beautiful good news of the gospel. Because here in verse 4, that's exactly where we turn. We see this light come in into that cave. This beautiful light of the gospel that comes in in two words. Listen to how verse 4 starts. But God, those may be the two most beautiful words in the whole Bible. But God, in the midst of this awful darkness, in the midst of the reality of who we are, but God actually does something. Dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. Walking around like we think that we know where we're going, but we're totally like zombies, but God. Affecting all of us inside and out, deeply affecting our actions. But God does something. Listen again to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Paul says that even in the midst of this spiritual death, God has come and He has given us new life. That He has raised us with Christ. That He has seated us with Him in the heavenly place. He has changed our location. He has taken, as Anne Lamott says, us from one universe to a completely different universe. And He's going to even do more. Paul says here that He's still going to show us even more of His immeasurable grace. There's still more of this good news to come. And why has He done this? 
Is it because we've done something to earn it? Is it because we kind of finally got our act together? No. Paul says it's only because of God's great love. Because of His infinite mercy. Because of His deep kindness. Because of His grace to us. Friends, when we sit back and we look on our lives and we look at who we are, God should not love us. (laughs) Because my sexuality is run off the rails, God should not love me. Because my anger is out of control and I'm lashing out against the people that I love, God should not love me. Because I depend more on alcohol or tobacco or painkillers than I do on the Holy Spirit, God should not love me. Because I love money more than I love Jesus, God should not love me. But guess what? He does. (laughs) Why? Because He does. He loves us simply because it's His nature to love and forgive. He loves us because He's merciful. He loves us because He is kind. He loves us because He is good. What you've just heard is what Christians call the gospel. The good news. That we realize the death that is in us. Our spiritual state as being apart from God without Him working. And Christians are just those who've realized that death and they have turned to Jesus for life. They have seen the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they've seen it at work in their own lives. To become a Christian is simply to do that. To realize that you are spiritually dead and to turn to Jesus for life. That is what it means to become a Christian. It's also what it means to live the Christian life. To realize that there is every day still that temptation to turn to lifeless things. But to actually follow Jesus because of his love, his grace, his mercy shown to you. That love and mercy and grace and kindness should grow in us. Our understanding of it should grow the longer that we follow him. We should know it more and more every day. That's what it means to be a Christian. What do we do with that? How do we apply that to our lives? How how should that amazing truth change us? Let me give you just a few things and then we'll close. The first thing is that it should amaze us. When we read something like that, that we were dead and Jesus made us alive, it should amaze us. We should be amazed by the grace of God given to us. Now I want to pause for just a second and and address... um, What I think actually might be in the minds of a lot of us sitting here. Because if you're anything like me, you may be thinking, Okay, Pastor, um, that's great and all, and that was really great for Paul, especially since he had this like lightning bolt experience in the middle of a road somewhere, but I've never had that. I've never known what it's like to feel like I'm totally dead and then to feel like I'm totally alive. I've never had this amazing conversion. You you may even kind of feel some sort of shame over that. Like you don't have a good enough story to be able to tell. And when you hear your friends tell this story of Jesus came in and he saved me, ripped me out before I was about to jump off this cliff, or he saved me out of drug addiction, or he saved me out of promiscuity, whatever it is, and you think, I don't have that story. My story's boring. A lot of us have boring conversion stories. (laughs) And the truth is, we're just fine with boring conversion stories here. We employ people in our church, and we gather a lot of volunteers to care for our kids and our youth because we want boring conversion stories. 
We want those things happening. We want people to not be stuck in the midst of their sin and have to be rescued. We want people to know it from an early age. So if you feel like you've got a boring conversion story, let me just tell you, that's okay. But I also want you to hear this. Even boring conversion stories have the same plot. And that plot is exactly what Paul just laid out for us now. That there was death and now there is life. That Jesus has rescued you and raised you to new life. That he has done something that you could never do on your own. For some of us who have kind of grown up in the church, there will be a light that kind of switches on at some point in our lives. This happened to me in college. I grew up in the church. I'd say there's never been a day that I didn't know that the Lord loved me somehow and I was His. But it wasn't until college that I saw this picture clearly. That I saw, oh, I see who I really am. I see the death in who I really am. I see that I was and am totally messed up and I need Jesus to come and save me. And the light went on. And the picture had always been the same, but I finally was able to see it clearly. Maybe that's some of you. Maybe you've had those times in your life where the light just kind of came on and you saw, oh my goodness, I now realize the amazing nature of God's grace to me. Or maybe there's some of you, and I think this is probably a smaller number, who really have known from the earliest age that you need Jesus to save you and that has motivated your whole life and you have walked with him in humility and the gospel has fueled you your whole life. That may be you and that may be your story. If it is, that's awesome. Give thanks for that. Pray for that story for your children and for mine. That's good news. But let me ask this question. Is the story of death and life, does it amaze us like it should? Are we amazed by the gospel? Those of us who have grown up in the church for a long time, those of us who have sat and listened who may be thinking, okay, I've seen this movie already, we're replaying it again. Does it amaze us like it should? If it doesn't amaze you, you need to ask the Lord to make it amaze you. Because it is an amazing story. Alright, here's the second piece. Not only should it amaze us, but it also should encourage us. See, a lot of us, I think, we hear this story and we stop right there at the bottom of that canyon. And we think, okay, I get it that there can be salvation. I get it that there can be new life. I get it that Jesus has come. But, you know, really, that's kind of for the people who are just better than me. And I don't deserve that. Friends, that could not be further from the truth. God's love and salvation, His mercy, is not for the people who are better. Just the opposite. It's for those who are worse. It is there because He is loving, not because anybody's earned it. So let me just remind you of the rest of the story. If you're stuck there at the dark part, if you're stuck in the bad news, you've made it halfway. That's good. But see the light now of the gospel and be encouraged. The Lord works The Lord is powerful. Jesus raises people to new life. And he does it in you as well. Here's the third piece. Not only should the gospel amaze us and encourage us, but it also should motivate us. See, the gospel, this good news of death to life, is what motivates us for change in our lives. 
It's actually what changes our lives. Christians are those who don't just see the gospel as their conversion story and then move on to doing everything in their, else in their life dependent upon them. No, it's all that we do that's dependent upon Jesus and His work in us. We are more and more amazed by that and we more and more then want to respond. We see the love that's been shown to us. We see the forgiveness and we want to respond to Jesus. We want to follow. Did you see how he begins saying, you were dead in the sins in which you once walked, but he ends by saying, you are Jesus' workmanship, created for good works so that you might walk in them. The arena in which we walk has been changed. Paul says we are God's work. He's made us for something. Who we are is not dependent upon what we do. Okay, Who we are is not dependent upon our actions. But friends, who we are and what we do still matter. They're still related. We do what we do because of who we are. God has made us His own. He has raised us to new life. And He has now called us to follow Him. Out of love. Out of response. Out of following the one who has given His life for us and raised us to new life. That is what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray that God would work those things in our hearts even now. Father, this is the uh, this is a story worth proclaiming. That there was death and now there is life. That you've done it and we haven't. That we are not the people that we once were. Lord, we're not even the people that we will be. Because you're still at work in us. And Lord, that we are now called to respond to that. Will you deepen our understanding of what you've done for us? Deepen even that bad news so that we might see more fully and more clearly the amazing good news, the love and the mercy of Jesus given to us. Will you show us that even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a couple moments now to reflect upon these things. It's also the time we'll take up this morning's offering.
Hi, my name is Kathy. One of the exciting things we get to do when we come together is pray. And so I invite you to pray with me this morning. Father God, we do thank you for the great privilege of coming before you in prayer. We thank you that you hear and answer our prayers. We thank you for the privilege of coming together, especially as a body, as a community. And we pray that you would help us when you answer our prayers in ways that we would prefer not to trust you. When you say no or maybe, or when you say I'm not telling you, Father, help us to trust you, for you are a trustworthy God. Thank you for the good news today that we just heard. We praise you that you are merciful, you are compassionate and gracious, and you bring death, you bring life where there was death. Um, When we contemplate